TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Hello, everyone. This is After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm Sarah Green Carmichael from Bloomberg. And I'm Amy Bernstein from Harvard Business Review. Welcome, Sarah and Amy. It's fabulous to have you both on the same show. That's amazing. It's so great to be here. It's great to be here. And Amy, I was dying to have you on the show. You have this super interesting podcast, Women at Work. Tell us a little about it. Well, first of all, this is not Sarah's and my first rodeo together on a podcast. <laughs> yes, I know. Sarah and I together were two of the three founding co-hosts of the Women at Work podcast. It's a limited series. We produce 10 or so episodes at a time, and it's focused on helping women navigate the workplace and its intersection with the rest of their lives. Is there something particularly surprising that you learned in the course of doing this work? Oh my gosh, through (laughs) seven seasons, so much. I was really surprised to find out that age discrimination cuts both ways. So I tend to think about age discrimination at the latter part of your career. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that a lot of women who are starting out in the first decade of their career, are also feeling age discrimination. Sarah, you are in on that conversation. Yeah, it's a little bit of the, oh, you're too young to know much about that. Yeah, I guess I never read that as age discrimination, but boy, did I learn from that conversation. Mm. Great. And then, of course, you brought the topic for our show today. Yes. Well, the reason I happen to be thinking about younger women in the workplace is that we're planning sort of a mini season focused on women making the leap from solo contributor to manager. So first time Mm. managers and the special challenges that women face. Super interesting. I'm so glad you're following up on that, Amy, because in the last season, one of the things that really surprised me to learn was that often women do not feel the sense of satisfaction that men feel when they become a boss for the first time. Yeah. Felix, what did you bring to talk about today? I would like to talk about gaming because it seems gaming in so many ways is taking over our world, the world of entertainment in particular. And I'm curious what you make of it. Is it a short-term trend? Is it something longer term? Can we learn something from games that is relevant for the rest of entertainment? Mm. That's a great topic. Great. Okay. 
So, Amy, women first-time managers. What's on your mind? Well, management is hard, but when you're brand new at it, it's particularly challenging. And add on to that, when you're a woman, there are extra challenges that come along with that. So there is, of course, the double bind, which is that trade-off between appearing competent and kind. Women, more than men, are expected to be warm and fostering and maternal in the workplace. And their competence is frequently questioned. Do they deserve this job? And this is called the double blind. And that in various forms has held women back for a very long time. But it really hits young women who are still trying to find their leadership persona. Mm. Wondering what you think about it now. I keep going back to that research by Daniela Loop, a researcher based in the UK. Mm -hmm. She found when she surveyed managers over time that one year before promotion, men had maybe not significant, but just a tiny little bit more job satisfaction than women. At the time they got promoted, it was even higher than women's. And then a year after their promotion, it was like way, way higher Women saw almost no bump. Mm -hmm. So women's job satisfaction does not budge very much depending on whether they've been promoted to manager or not, whereas men's does. Mm -hmm. Men get more power. They feel good. <laughs> there is a dearth of role models for women moving into management because women leave managerial jobs in far higher numbers than men do. There's also the lack of access to networks and that kind of support. Ellabelle Smith has called it the concrete wall. Mm. It's when you don't actually know the unwritten rules because you don't have your sponsors and mentors helping you get familiar with them. You don't have the language and you don't know the structures of the workplace. One of the things that I find particularly interesting is this notion of leadership persona, Amy, that you started us out on. Mm -hmm. So to think of that first-time job when I'm a manager for the first time in my career, it's almost a little bit like an identity crisis. I have to be a different person. Yeah. Somehow the kinds of things that used to work are not really working. I'm not really doing a good job. And one analogy that comes to mind is... Imagine you never wear pink and then someday you decide, oh my God, maybe pink does look much better on me than I thought. And you go to work in a pink shirt. You'll be hypersensitive to everyone's responses. Yeah. Maybe no one even really notices your shirt, but because you're so aware. And I think that's in part what happens in this leadership transition is that you are hypersensitive to signals of disrespect. You are hypersensitive to being accepted, being not accepted. And even if they're just small signals about maybe what I perceive as I was really decisive, you think, oh my God, he was really pushy. Yeah. I think that can then take away the joy and can make me really insecure about how good a job I'm doing. I think that's one thing that is particularly difficult in those early years. You might be smart, you might be hardworking, but so much of finding your groove mm -hmm. in that new role depends on your environment. And if the environment is not so great, and if there are no other women in that environment, 
finding that new identity, creating that new identity is going to be extra difficult. I totally agree. And I would only add that building the confidence that you need to be a great leader comes in part from that positive feedback. Yes. That you're not getting if someone says, wow, pink, Felix, really? (laughs) (laughs) I think in part it's also complicated because many other things are going on at one and the same time. So, Sarah, the point about how happy am I as a leader, turns Mm -hmm. out that has a lot to do with the kind of ideas about mission and purpose that I grew up with. So, for instance, you will find that many doctors are really unhappy in managerial positions. One of the reasons is... The managerial position sort of takes me away from what I set out to do to begin with. I wanted to take care of patients. I wanted to further someone else's health. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm still doing that as a manager, but it's in a much more indirect fashion. And so one of the things that I would wish organizations would do better is just recognize this identity crisis and the many facets of this identity crisis that we call becoming a leader. And then put systems, put people in place that would make the transition a little easier. And I think easier for men and women, because it's not as though all men who are fabulous individual contributors then become successful managers. And what I love about what you just said, Felix, is that you separate the part of leadership that's administration, that takes you away from the actual work, from the part that's about motivation and inspiration, where you're really in touch with the people whom you oversee to help them do the work. That seems like a really important distinction here. And the first part is actually a lot easier than the second part. And that's where you have to get the practice. Well, and that's where I think some of the ways in which women get pushback becomes especially challenging. So we know from studies on delegation, for example, Mm -hmm. that women tend to get more pushback when they delegate. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if a whole part of being a boss is developing people's skills, which involves delegating to them and not getting pulled down into the minutia yourself, which involves delegating to people, (laughs) and then people (laughs) sort of push back on you and say, oh, you know, I'm not going to work on this, or they just passively, aggressively ignore the delegated request then you can see why someone might start to question their confidence as a manager or not even enjoy being a manager. Because it's like, look, I'm doing all the same work I was doing before. I'm trying to hand off work and develop people and it's not working. Yeah. And there's the other part related to that where women have a tougher time when they move from individual contributor into a managerial role, being seen by their former peers as managers. And there's this phenomenon that we recently published on called bullying up, which now that I've said it, you can imagine what it means is that your former peers actually kind of treat you badly as you assume a managerial role. This is in part so interesting, Sarah, because the second issue that we haven't spoken about so much is what people sometimes call the broken rung or the Mm -hmm. missing rung. Mm -hmm. We get far fewer applications from women into managerial positions. And there's been a really fabulous study by Ingrid Hegele. 
she looked at a huge manufacturing company in Europe, so hundreds of thousands of employees. And she looked at the reasons why women would or would not apply to jobs with managerial responsibility. And maybe the most interesting part about her study is she identified three types of jobs where you have the role of a manager. One is what you typically think. Now I have responsibility for a team. I manage a group of people. One was more of an expert role where I get promoted, I have managerial responsibility, but I still largely work for myself and I assist other groups in the organization. And then a third role where you're basically the head of a project. Mm -hmm. So you're working with people, but it's not always the same people. And what she find, which was really interesting, is there's no difference between men and women when it comes to the project role or the expert role. So women are as likely as comfortable applying. But the big difference is really a reflection of you're much less likely to apply for roles that involve managing a team. And that, of course, is consistent, I think, with your story, Sarah, that there's something about power, there's something about prestige, now I'm the boss. But also it's worth thinking about what are all the other things that come along with managing a stable team. So why is it, for instance, that women are quite comfortable taking on project roles where you also manage people, but it's not the same people. It sort of changes over time. But this idea of maybe being locked into a particular part of the organization, that that's less appealing. Hmm. As in your research, Sarah, there's no great explanation. But as a finding, I thought it was really interesting. It's not because women can't do the work. You know, when you look at 360 reviews, female managers rate very highly and in many cases higher than male managers. Mm -hmm, it's really mm -hmm. the exceptional women who are getting ahead. So mm -hmm. we need these workers to do this work. And it's troubling that we still are trying to crack this nut. <laughs> what have the two of you seen as examples of companies that do this particularly well. What stands out? I think one practice that I would like to see more companies adopt is not waiting passively to see who applies for their open jobs, mm -hmm. but going around and actually doing the tap on the shoulder. Because mm -hmm. a lot of younger employees especially they think they're going to get a tap on the shoulder if someone sees promise in them. And a lot of companies are like, no, no, we're waiting to see who applies. And I think that tap on the shoulder is something that actually could have a huge impact in balancing the scales. That's interesting. I also think the mentorship slash sponsorship piece is incredibly important here. And there are companies that mark you as a manager on your willingness and on your generosity with your time, with your wisdom. And I think that that's a softer way of going about it. But I do think that that bears fruit over a long term. Yeah, that's interesting. I've seen a really fascinating example in one of the divisions of Accenture in Europe, mm -hmm. where you can unilaterally change your work contract with the company deciding at any point in time whether you would like to work 80% or 90% or perhaps 70%, whether you would like to take longer vacations, shorter vacations. And to the extent that flexibility is important for everyone, but maybe particularly important for women, I thought that was really interesting that you didn't need 
anyone's approval. You didn't need a conversation with your boss. Is that a good idea? But just if you felt this is the right thing for me to do at this point in time in my career, that you were free to do so. And Mm -hmm. it signaled sort of a kind of flexibility and a kind of freedom that I wish I saw across many more companies. And I do think it's particularly important once we normalize that kind of flexibility, that then some of the issues that are of greater concern to women are less so going forward. Well, one specific practice that really does help women is job sharing. It can be kind of challenging to administer sometimes, but people can make it work. And when it works, it can be a huge boon to anyone, particularly to women who have other responsibilities they have to deal with. One thing I'd like to see companies maybe stop doing in that same vein is right now so many companies are cracking down on flexibility and trying to impose really rigid expectations of when to be in a specific location, namely the office, so that you can do your Zoom calls and emails from the office rather than from (laughs) at home. But that's going to have a disproportionately negative effect on women. And I think that kind of blanket imposition of a company policy is something that I wish more companies would pump the brakes before imposing. Wait until the leases on the office space run out and then we'll have a lot more flexibility. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll see, yeah. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks running shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. Well, Felix, let's talk about the future of video games. What is so fascinating to you about this industry right now? Well, of course, it's just a backhanded way for me to talk about Harry Potter, (laughs) as you might have guessed. (laughs) Just a couple of weeks ago, a new Harry Potter Hogwarts Legacy was released, and it was a huge success. Mm -hmm. Warner Brothers' revenues of close to a billion dollars just within a few weeks. And when I first saw the headline, my thinking was, oh, I didn't even really see. Did I overlook movie listings? And then it turns out, no, it's not a movie. It's a video game. And across so many dimensions, I see games and gaming now becoming a part of entertainment that maybe swallows the rest of entertainment. So globally, we spend about $200 billion on games. That's five times as much as we spend on movies. Mm. It's almost twice as much as we spend on streaming. So it's just big. And then 
interestingly, it gets incorporated with other forms of entertainment. Mm -hmm. So I think, for instance, the Ariana Grande concert on Fortnite. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, it turns out that, oh, actually, game environments are a fabulous concert environment. Or The Walking Dead, the television series, that now, all of a sudden, is a huge game on Facebook. And so we know that streaming essentially ate television. Do you think gaming will swallow the rest of entertainment? What's your sense? Well, I think it's certainly showing the rest of media, not just entertainment, that engagement counts and that you cannot just expect consumers of media to sit back and be talked at or have words run in front of them. That's just not going to hack it. Right now, the growth in video gaming is on mobile phones. But when console was really the way people played games, the most stunning figure I saw was that the average video game got 60 hours of use per player. That's amazing. That is incredible. <laughs> Think of how many Harry Potter movies, Felix, that 60 hours accounts for. <laughs> like three. They're really long movies. <laughs> That's your uh, perception, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting to me is that despite games becoming such a big business, during the pandemic, gaming eclipsed sports and movies combined in terms of the amount of money sloshing around. And mm -hmm. despite all of that, I think that they don't seem to drive a conversation the way that other media properties do. So hmm. a newspaper with a scoop or even a best-selling book in some ways, TV shows. You know, I think about something like The Last of Us. It was a game for 10 years before it was a TV show, but it wasn't until it was a TV show that it suddenly was dominating the national conversation and you couldn't go anywhere without someone asking if you'd watched it. Somehow gaming has not caught up in the same way, even despite its size. And so I'm very curious to see when will we get to that tipping point? I think we will. But right now, you know, if I do the New York Times crossword, the only gaming company that's in there usually is Atari. That's not exactly current. So I feel like it deserves more cultural resonance than it's getting, given the size of the business. Do you think that's a reflection of where we spend time? That's a conversation that is happening, but the three of us are just totally missing it because we're looking at the crossword puzzle in the New York Times and people spend time on Roblox and all of these other venues that now have become almost sort of shadow social media. Mm -hmm. I'm totally fascinated by the number of people who find it super, super interesting to look at others who play video games. I have another theory about that, which is that undoubtedly HBO amplified The Last of Us, the video game with The Last of Us, the series. But I can tell you what happened on The Last of Us the series because it had a beginning, middle, and an end. Mm -hmm, Video mm -hmm. games have storylines, but they have a thousand storylines. That's what makes them so engaging. Yeah. So I don't know what happens in Grand Theft Auto, except I know exactly what can happen. So it's very hard to talk about the story. A headline in a newspaper, and I have a feeling that maybe we are the last three people who looked at a newspaper this morning. <laughs> Quite possibly. But that is a story, and it it's a narrative, and it has a beginning, middle, and an end. That is a, an essential part of 
a complete thought and the complete thought has resonance. I think that's true. I also think that there is a way in which video games are still stigmatized, not the way that they necessarily were in the 90s when there was all this hype about how video games were going to rot your kids' brains or teach them to be super violent. But there is still a sense that video games are just pure leisure. Mm -hmm. And with books or even with prestige TV, not trash TV, but prestige TV, there is a (laughs) sense that you're spending your time on something worthwhile. And I think games really deserve that level of cultural acclaim. But I think that there is still maybe this stigma that like, oh, you're just sort of killing time playing a video game. So maybe people don't talk about it as much but clearly the numbers don't lie they're buying these games lots of people are playing these games even if it's not kind of what they lead with in their conversations with other people or in the press forever people have been trying to show that video games turn you into a violent nincompoop but for every study that says video games foster violence there is another study that says great video game players can become great fighter pilots. Yes. There was a study from JAMA Open Network. It's about adolescent cognitive development and that kids who play a lot of video games think faster and think more accurately. That's fascinating. Totally fascinating. I think especially the rise of social media and parents' concerns about what social media is doing to kids completely has displaced video games as a source of fear. Now, as a parent, you're probably thrilled if your kid is spending tons of time on video games because they're not spending tons of time on Instagram or something. Mm -hmm. The time spent and the thousands of storylines is also interesting from a business point of view because we have that same trend in games that we saw in an earlier generation of movies where the production cost, at least for AAA titles, just continues to go up where you can now spend a hundred million plus on the development. And I think in the movie world, the response was sequels. Right. You spent a lot of money on the original film and then you monetized it with the help of sequels. And in particular at this moment in time, it feels maybe this has run out a bit. So am I really going to watch Fast and Furious 49? Mm, Probably not. Is the Marvel Universe, can it really be extended forever? Mm. And what's really interesting about games has a different response to that. Games has what some people now call games as service. It's just these small incremental improvements that you can pay for. So you have a game with a map and then the map becomes better over time. Maybe it has more information or you have all the other forms of monetizing the game. Frankly, that seems so much more sustainable than the movie model. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see the extent to which movies will actually learn from games, that there are these other monetization opportunities that are just more promising than what movies have done in general. Oh my God, are we going to have like in-film purchasing? (laughs) I love what Gwyneth Paltrow is wearing. I must own it. (laughs) Actually, I bet it's not that far off because you could just hold your phone up to the screen. Yeah. Your phone would do an image search and then you too could see the whatever they are, suede pants. You know, cable companies... We're experimenting with that very function Mm -hmm. in the first part of the 21st century. So like the 2001 era, where you could point your Q-cat or something 
at the screen and buy those awesome boots. Yeah. And then the second monetization opportunity is, of course, subscriptions. So imagine mm-hmm. instead of buying individual movie tickets, we buy subscriptions to a series of titles. Microsoft Game Pass is essentially trying to do exactly that. There, frankly, it's a little less clear to me whether that makes sense because subscriptions work really well, say, in the case of Spotify, where you have a universe of content. Most of it I don't really care about, but there's still a good range of titles for which I have a positive willingness to pay. If games completely draw me in so that at any one point in time, it's only really one title that is of interest to me or maybe two titles at most, right? it's not clear that the implicit price discrimination that is at the heart of subscription models, that that's really extends in a straightforward way to games as well. Mm. And I think that game makers have really figured that out. So Call of Duty, for example, drops a new season regularly. And Call of Duty is like crack, as far as I can tell. (laughs) I live with a Call of Duty enthusiast, and I use that word euphemistically. And every time a new season drops, I know I won't see her for days. So I think that that particular model is really fascinating. The other thing is in-app advertising. Yes. It's bigger than product placement. So important now for monetization. Yeah. All of this... In particular, the comment about where the conversation takes place makes me wonder, when will we read the first Bloomberg opinion column penned by Sarah that (laughs) exclusively deals with games, elevating the conversation to the general marketplace? Well, I will say you should not read that column, but you should read this amazing novel by Gabrielle Zevin. I've probably mispronounced her last name called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Oh, I'm reading it. It's so good. It's so good. It's a brilliant novel, and it's set in this world of video game development extending from, like, Mm. the early 90s to, like, 2012. It's an epic novel. It's a literary novel, and I keep hearing people saying, but I'm not into video games. I'm not going to read it. And then they read it, and their minds are blown. Yeah. So that's what you should read. Oh, yeah. Plus one. And with this, we have the most beautiful segue to (laughs) recommendations. Thank you, Sarah. (laughs) Happy to help. And we have recommendations, of course. Amy, what did you bring? Oh, I was so looking forward to this. I'm going to recommend one of my other favorite podcasts called The Rest is History. It's two British historians, Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook. And in every episode, they zero in on some moment in history. I happened on them in the middle of a three-part series they did on Admiral Nelson. The way uh they told the story, it's as if you were on the ship with him, that you were in his cabin as he was dying. They breathe this stuff and they bring so much life to it that you suddenly have an appreciation of history as a three-dimensional, very human topic. And they range from ancient Egypt up to Ronald Reagan. They just did one on the tradition of Women Warriors in Africa, which is fascinating. That's a great recommendation. That sounds great. What do you have, Sarah? 
I also have a history-related recommendation. I just finished reading the book Amsterdam, A History of the World's Most Liberal City by Russell Shorto. And this is an older book. It came out maybe about 10 years ago. It's both a fascinating history of the city of Amsterdam and also kind of traces this idea of an old-fashioned kind of liberalism that I think today we would view as toleration or tolerance, a very sort Mm -hmm. of live-and-let-live style of liberalism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's something that seems like it's really gone out of fashion since the book was published. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) I think there's definitely reactionary forces on the right. There's also forces on the left that are now say, like, tolerance is not enough. You must be very inclusive and create an active culture of belonging. And Mm -hmm. it was just interesting to me to sort of go back to this older idea especially at a time when there is a lot of debate about what are we going to allow as a society? You know, are we going to censor ideas or not? And it was just interesting to revisit this and to realize, like, of course, we've had this debate for hundreds and hundreds of years. And at different times, the pendulum has swung different ways. And I would recommend maybe revisiting the history of this kind of idea and how we've dealt with these sorts of conflicts before. Hmm. And if nothing else, it's a great story of the city of Amsterdam. That sounds really great. Mm. Felix, what did you bring? Since we talked about entertainment and news, I wanted to recommend an article in The Atlantic by Derek Thompson. Click here if you want to be sad. It's about the negativity that you encounter online. In part, it discusses a study that was done with data from Upworthy. But the general sense is, why is it that for traditional media, really, if it bleeds, it leads, is like the oldest maxim in journalism. Mm -hmm. What is it about sad news or negative news that then creates this feedback loop where the audience seems to like it, and if the audience seems to be interested, the journalists have to cater to audience tastes, and so on and so on. And part of what's really fascinating is the insight that, in particular for online news, online news is such a small part of the overall news ecosystem. And in this small part of the overall news ecosystem, the people who drive negativity, who drive the sad news, they're a tiny minority. And they're just super, super active. Mm. I thought it was really interesting just to read the analysis of how we get a phenomenon that seems so huge. Like every time I open my paper in the morning, I'm mildly nervous about the flood of negative news and how it can be at the same time a manifestation of something that is quite small and quite special. So I really enjoyed reading that. I will definitely have to look that up, Felix, because I do the same thing, but I do it with like an evening scroll right before bed. (laughs) Put down the phone, Sarah. (laughs) I know. At least look at it in the morning, not at night. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And this is it for tonight. Thank you for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective. 